ownership in settler states is based on lies and fabrications and so it's on really really shaky ground. Although the state claims to be acting in the general interest, benefits fall not only along class lines but also racial, colonial and anthropocentric lines. Most animals in direct relation with human economies to goat today, whether within agricultural systems or as research subjects or companions, are owned as property. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome all. Um, thank you for coming along to this session. I wanted to start by acknowledging the country I'm on. Um, I'm coming from Perth, so I'm on the land of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation. I'd like to pay respects to the traditional owners of this land and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded on the land that I'm on. Um, it's possible that sovereignty was not ceded on the land you are on, and you're welcome to make your own acknowledgement to country in the chat. My name is Dinesh Wadiwal. I'm an associate professor in sociology and criminology at the University of Sydney. And I'm also a member of the Sydney Environment Institute. This panel has been brought uh, to you by the Sydney Environment Institute. And SEI is a multidisciplinary research institute which, with a mission to bring together expertise from across the disciplines to take on some of the greatest environmental challenges that we face today, all for the common good. SEI recognises the breadth of harms unfolding, so leverages multidisciplinary problem solving to have an impact on the personal and cultural, the social and political, and the ecological and economic. This panel is, has emerged today from part of an ongoing conversation that's been happening in SEI for a number of years. And we're calling, we call it the Multi-Species Justice Collective. Um, and through this collaboration, a range of scholars have been working on ways to transform how we think about human rights, environmental studies, and human animal studies. Um, at the same time as trying to define an, a new field of study. Um, economic justice has been one aspect of this investigation and today's panel builds on this. Today's panel focuses on unpacking property from a multi-species justice perspective. Arguably property sits at the center of the political contestations which are vital today. Self-determination struggles by indigenous peoples, mass scale wealth, and income inequality and climate change, which is a direct result of an economic system which has turned everything into a site of potential wealth at odds with the planetary systems. Property relations have been a focus of scholarship and critique within a range of decolonial movements over the last century and within, of course, socialist movements. Given the growing interest in justice beyond the human, we felt this panel was a fantastic way to bring together some new perspectives from the standpoint of multi-species justice. Allow me to briefly introduce our five speakers. You can read our speakers' more extensive bios um, on the event webpage. Rosemary Claire Collard is Associate Professor in the Department of Geography, Simon Fraser University, Canada. Uh, Rosemary Claire is author of Animal Traffic, Lively Capital in the Global Exotic Trade, a Pet Trade from Duke University Press. Jessica Dempsey is an Associate Professor in the Department of Geography, the University of British Columbia, Canada. Jessica is author of Enterprising Nature, Economics, Markets and Finance in Global Biodiversity Politics. And that's with Wiley from 2016. 
Christine Winter is Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Otago. Christine is author of Subjects of Intergenerational Justice, Indigenous Philosophies, the Environment and Relationships. Rebecca Pierce is Lecturer in the School of Sociology and the Fenner School of Environment and Society, Australian National University. And Rebecca is author of Pricing Carbon in Australia, Contestation of the State and Market Failure. And finally, um, I'm an author of the book War Against Animals and anxiously awaiting the release of a book with Edinburgh University Press called Animals and Capital. Okay, so our first presentation is from Rosemary Clare and Jessica, and it is titled Abolition for Alternative Geographies of Abundance. Thanks so much, Jess and Rose. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Dinesh, and thanks also Beck and Evie for hosting us and inviting us. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Um, Jess and I are calling in from the territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam in Vancouver, British Columbia. And here where we live, we are actually waiting on the provincial government to decide any day whether it's going to approve another coal mine in endangered caribou habitat in Northeast BC. And this is Treaty 8 territory, specifically West Moberly First Nations and Soto First Nations territory. And those nations are opposed to the mine which they and scientists say will drive the a, a second caribou herd in the region to extinction. And Glencore, the mining company behind the project, says in its environmental assessment that it will mitigate harms to caribou, mainly by directing $3 million towards wolf culling. So mines and other extractive industries destroy caribou habitat, but in doing so, they also make caribou more vulnerable to wolf predation. And the BC government's primary caribou recovery strategy has not been care, uh, ha habitat protection, but rather the culling of hundreds of wolves a year, a stopgap measure at best. So caribou and wolves might seem like a far cry from abolition with its original focus on abolishing slavery and now a focus on the prison industrial complex. Caribou and wolves might even seem distant from the often fraught calls for abolition from animal liberationists who focus on domesticated animals. But abolition is expansive. It is a method for understanding problems. It is a strategy for changing them and a vision for what could be, and one that has a lot to teach us about global environmental crises like extinction. Um, <clears throat> hi, everyone. Uh, recent thinking around abolition takes shape around a way of understanding problems at hand as complexes. So you can think here the prison industrial complex and animal industrial complex. And so this leads us to ask, what is a what is a complex? Um, it's a system of exploitation, yes, one sustained through a larger set of institutions and social forces than the prison or the feedlot itself. But two, following abolitionist LaRue Lewis McCoy, a complex is also like a kind of problem solver. Only the solutions do not solve the problems, um, but only feed back into the complex, building it up further. So the prison industrial complex is a clear example of this, supposedly solving the problem of crime, but, but not only failing, but actually creating more problems and feeding the complex. So our research on caribou examines what we might call the environmental extractivist complex, eek. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's our own little stupid jokes. It's an acronym. <laughs> um, extractive in a broad sense, following scholars like Leanne Simpson as an act of taking and a set of non-reciprocal relations, which is a primary driver of accelerating loss of wild animal abundance. 
That's extractive. Environmental in that over the past half century, thousands of environmental laws and agreements have been passed to try to slow the loss. Um, these laws often seen as separate from or even in opposition to this extractivism are not working. And we argue must be understood as part of the complex. So caribou exemplify this. Canada has a federal endangered species act and caribou are supposed to supposedly protected under treaty rights. Behind all of this law and policy is, of course, the state, which authorizes all these developments, cut block, cut block after cut block, mine after mine. So why does it approve all these developments impacting this charismatic protected megafauna that is actually on the quarter, the Canadian quarter? It's on our money. Um, well, now the state justifies this extractivism through claims of general interest, that these developments bring benefits for all, or in our case, all British Columbians. So similarly here to prisons, which supposedly benefit everyone by maintaining safety, the idea here is that we extract, all will benefit through jobs, economic growth, and increased tax revenues. Um, so in our research, we really follow abolitionism like as a method, a methodology to better understand what's the shape of the complex, like what sustains it, what kinds of problems does the complex say it's trying to solve, what are the outcomes, and of course, who and what is being served by this complex. And now property, to turn to the, the topic here today, and the role of the state in relation to property is central in answering these questions, and it's implicated in the Eek complex, the environmental extractivist complex. So property, um, Dinesh and Beck write in their, their prompt for this event, quote, is arguably at the core of our global environmental crises, which have placed the survival of the planetary systems which support life in antagonistic relation with the private property rights of the few, end quote. And we see that in our research, which unsurprisingly finds consistently some people like forest company CEOs, mining investors, they have profited by the millions by caribou destroying extraction. And they benefit through state issued contracts, right? Like leases and tenures that award private interests access to public land and rights to resources. So private accumulation through property rights in public resources enshrined by the state is a key element of, of the EEC. But there's another property state relation that's central to these crises. All of this extraction is happening on crown land. And so the state is not only an architect and protector of private property rights, but also an owner and beneficiary of property in its own right. And state-owned property comes with a somewhat different set of interests and motivations beyond just private accumulation. So first, on interests, at, at least on the face of it, the state authorizes extraction on its property to serve the public, general interest. So is it actually achieving results here? Well, for sure, you know, large hydro dams produce much of BC's electricity. These and other developments produce resource rents and taxes that fund important services. And it's dangerous to point to just a few beneficiaries because it denies the full scope of the complex, right? The way the state is tied up in extractivism to serve its public like I said, at least on the face of it. At the same time, even something like electricity is not universal. So Quadatcha First Nation, who were dispossessed by a major dam in the same region where this new coal mine is being proposed, still themselves have no electricity. And that same dam was the beginning of caribou decline. So although the state claims to be acting in the general interest, 
benefits fall not only along class lines, but also racial, colonial, and anthropocentric lines. So the general interest is not universal, but specific, as Sylvia Winter writes, to a particular idea of the human. Second, the set of motivation uh, at play. So a more surprising finding of our research is that the state does not always itself benefit financially from extraction. Our research into existing coal mines shows the state has collected little to no corporate tax. In the case of forestry, revenues don't cover the costs of administration. So what else is motivating the state here? Um, this is where building from scholars of settler colonialism, we find that the state pursues extraction on its property in a potent enactment of sovereignty, where in particularly in this context of nested sovereignties, to use Audra Simpson's term, where there are competing claims of authority between crown and indigenous nations and sovereignty needs to be continually enacted by the state. So just to conclude, um, Yes, the state uses its formidable power to apportion private property that, of course, generates private accumulation. But two, the extractive complex is also driven by the state's pursuit on kind of public lands of the general interest to, to, to try to uh, 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 um, serve the general interest and also to assert Canadian sovereignty in this unsettled context of nested, nested sovereignties. So what's the implication of this analysis? Um, we'll just say, I'll just say a, a, a minute here. So any thinking about alternatives and abundance needs to reckon with state with the state and its claim to property. Um, crucially, these property rights are far from given in Canada. They're fundamentally uncertain as the state's own courts recognize, but only because of Indigenous peoples' really unrelenting uh, work over the past centuries to force this acknowledgement. And there's just a huge amount of work thinking about these topics in Canada, a real blossoming often inspired by Indigenous land back movements who refuse not only Canadian sovereignty, but also this narrow scripting of land as property, as supply, to use Shiri Pasternak's words. That is, as Heidi Stark, Stark writes, the issue is not simply who is the ultimate authority or the owner, but also how we want to relate to each other. In a recent piece, she suggests the importance of seeing jurisdictional authority as flowing from the more than human. And this points again to a need for a public interest rooted in multi-species care, to paraphrase uh, Sherry Pasternak. So just going back to the region we started in, Northeast BC, the coal mine, Near this mine, a bright spot amidst the declines, the West Moberly and Soto nations have constructed these really giant pens, maternal pens, where caribou calves are birthed and protected from predators. It's led to the only herd that has shown any signs of recovery. So these nations are moving in the direction of care, but do so within this complex that is still very much moving in the direction of decline. Um, that's it. Looking forward to the other talks. Thank you. Thanks so much, um, Jess and Rose, and um, that, that's that's a hard act to follow immediately. Um, but some really important points about the state, particularly that I think we need to come back to. Um, okay, moving quickly on to our second presentation. Um, so this is from Christine, who will present a an intervention, the next intervention entitled "When Who Are Land Is Freedom, Land Is Servitude." Thanks so much, Christine. Uh, 
Rihi ki Rihi na iwi ako utapoti taku kainga for Christine Winter taku unua no rera tenakoto 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 katoa. So thanks Dinesh for organising the event and for inviting me, and it's a really pleasure, real pleasure to be with you all. So whenever a Maori person or any many New Zealanders now um, begin speaking, they do so by identifying from where they're from, to whom and where they relate. So that is, I started with my pepiha, which tells the story of belonging and relating to the first ancestors in Aotearoa who arrived on the boat Takatimu. It identifies the mountain and the river, the hapu, Ngāti Hinanihi relate to, to which 30 generations of ancestors have related to and where they lie. And I speak, spoke of my wider uh, relations with Ngāti Kahanunu, with the English and Irish ancestry, and where I'm now living. So it's an, an image of generations of relationships, human and non-human, physical and spiritual. And, you know, it's kind of a bit different from, hi, I'm Christine from Otago University. It's also different from the imaginary of property rights, uh, property rights linked concepts of individual freedom with what uh, Elizabeth Anker calls ugly freedom. So I am to show that land with a lowercase l, to, uh, to borrow from Max Sobraro, is a very thin concept of Earth's terrestrial surface generated by the concepts of property and individual property rights in general. Lowercase l land is rendered dispassionately in law and politics as an object, as moments of longitude and latitude, as if it's not a teeming hive of uh, life and activity, of energy and potential, of ancestors and history and spirits and ageless forces. So a pepka builds a picture of capital L land or whenua as a set of relationships, of kinships, of complex time and space that spans past, present, future, and gives identity and freedom. It grounds, locates, identifies, and defines a nest of relationships, the sorts of relationships from which freedoms arise. There's no idea of a property right in that mix. There is a sense of belonging, of being entangled, of time-long associations and responsibilities between all living and non-living existence, of giving and caring, knowledge-making and learning, protection and history. That is at the all about uppercase L land or whenua. So I'm con contrasting that with what I see as the very slippery freedom of lowercase L land. That, and this kind of builds on what Jess and um, Rose have been saying, is that the freedoms that are at once ugly to come back to anchor and also illusionary. So there are a number of ways that we can discuss that, but I'm just going to focus on two. And the first is that ownership in settler states is based on lies and fabrications, and so it's on really, really shaky ground. And then I'll expand on how climate change is unsettling the certainty, the freedom of property ownership. Finally, I'll suggest that the call for land back, that Tuck and Yang define as the end point of decolonization, that land back is not at all scary, that it's the only prospect actually for widespread multi-species fairness and justice, and perhaps more importantly, for real and widespread freedoms. So, I've suggested that land ownership in the estates is a thin and fragile imaginary. Uh, thin because it ignores the complex webs of being that constitute 
up at place L land and fragile because it was and is based in lies and fraud and deception or in modern speak in disinformation and gaslighting. The process by which colonial settlers acquired title to land as property is well documented and that the terms of that ang uh, uh, acquisition transgressed even Anglo-European legal frameworks is equally well known. So too is the obfuscation about violence and murder and genocide that accompanied the land theft or the land and the home invasion as the late Moana Jackson called it. What strikes me then is the extraordinarily tenuous hold the system gives one to property rights. If a system of communal relationships that has existed for centuries, for millennia in Australia um, and in Canada, um, can be overturned in a short few years, then what on earth makes any of us think that the current system has integrity or has any hope of longevity? That is, it can be undercut at the stroke of a pen. And again, this is the sort of thing that Jess and, and Rose were just speaking about. But, but I want to remind you of, you know, a of Trump on his first day in office scrawling with that child's marker pen and undoing a, Obama's National Reserve. Almost savagely, we can reflect on the upended lives in the Ukraine or people displaced for a new motorway or whatever. So one's own state or, or a hostile one can dislodge any claim to land on with any sort of half-decent excuse. So my, my argument there is that property rights are both morally and legally fragile. And the second thing I want to talk about is sort of the, the fickle proxy um, for wealth that land is as we think about the changes brought by climate change. So with climate changing climate regimes, individual, individual property rights afford very little protection, no guarantee one year to the other. So if you're on the coast, the sea's coming for that land, stealing that land as I read in the newspaper headline recently, or does your property adjoin a river? It, 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 the river, can take your property in a single roaring torrent. Or if you farm on a fertile plain, a drought coupled with strong winds will whip up, whip up your soil and deposit on, on my windowsills and across my floors. So there are many levels on which this demonstrates a tenuous link to the freedoms associated with the illusionary permanence drawn from the misunderstanding that land is static and inert, not a living, evolving, slowly changing home to multitudes. And not least that land values, capital values, can plunge on overnight in a freak event. Moreover, uh, as unnatural destructive events become commonplace, where did the displaced go if every corner of is held in possessive exclusion? There's no freedom to be found there, only servitude to the vagaries of an already unfair distribution. So finally, well, I just want to talk about freedom being found in Fenua or why land back's not scary. So where land is Fenua, that is a teeming, lively community of physical form, waters, life forms, energy, ancestors, spirits, cared for in common by a community, a community committed to its well-being, then the loss of France, the loss of a home, the loss of gardens, while still heart-wrenching, becomes easier to accommodate, accommodate than when it's held as private property 
in which the owner has the right or the freedom to destroy it at will, or where it's ravaged by the unnatural forces unleashed by climate change, where the owner then loses freedom and their property or wealth in one fell swoop. And there's no freedom in living in the shadow of such threats. Rather, it is, it is to live in fear, constantly attempting to keep the invaders at bay, be they other humans or animals or weeds or the elements. So this is part of the pragmatic or utilitarian part of why I think Lambach's not scary. So Lambach means land it has a capital L. And in this context, in the context of this paper, in this discussion, among other things, it means upending the temporary lies of colonial land theft and returning it to its rightful heirs and protectors. And that there will always be a place for those who care for land, for whenua or for country in the Australian context because these are non-exclusionary concepts. If the river takes a patch, there'll be somewhere else to care for, to find your refuge, to build your nest. Land with a capital L is not an expression of exclusion. And then you have freedom, a kind of beautiful freedom where the inequalities between humans and the multiple relationships with those with whom humans share the planet are reduced, not eliminated, but tempered where to occupy a space, you must commit to its protection and growth, prepare it for future generations of all beings who may team within or on or above it. So my argument is in, in a sentence, um, or my argument has been, that while the idea of lowercase l land seems to grant freedom, it's freedom's phantom. Freedom is found in the protection of relationships with and love of whenua or uppercase l land, including multi-species relationships not ownership of land. So I'm suggesting kamua kamuri, that is we, we should look back to move forward. Thanks so much, Christine. And I think you've highlighted both the paranoiac um, relationship that um, circulates private property, but also the freedom that uh, mm. is offered by giving land back. So thank you. That's something I think I hope we'll come back to. I want to move to our next speaker. Um, Beck, who's going to be presenting uh, the paper, um, The State of Agricultural Extension Labour on Biodiverse Property. Thanks so much, Beck. So this talk is, is going to be much more descriptive than the other interventions, and I hope that's okay. I'm in the middle of writing up a report um, where I'm reflecting on the work of the environmental education staff whose programs are largely focused on negotiating practice change, conservation on private property with agricultural producers in New South Wales. So I'm basically talking about the workforce tasked by the state um, to deal with matters of multi-species care on the fringes of the settler property regime. Um, I've done a series of career history interviews with those rural extension workers, the ones focused on promoting conservation in the temperate woodlands of New South Wales, um, and um, I've talked to people in land care, the New South Wales government agencies like local land services, as well as citizen science groups. The basic question I've got um, is, you know, when it comes to protecting and producing diverse multi-species life amidst capitalist agriculture, who's doing that labour um, of education and outreach in the name of conservation and, and how are they doing that work? I'll share some examples uh, shortly, but basically they're doing, these workers are doing relational labour of education 
and negotiating contracts with property owners for ecosystem services, for natural assets. These educators labour with weak state regulations on their side and pots of public finance to patch together habitat refuges in what is otherwise an extinction hotspot. The common critical reading of rural environmental extension work is that these educators do um, are basically serving the zombie project of green neoliberalism. They're the middle people for the fraught political economic processes aimed at rendering unpriced nature as capital. And there are a lot of reasons to be critical along these lines of the structure and character of that work. Um, but my reticence, apart from the fact that I now work closely with people who do this work, is that that critique can stop at the level of ideology, like it floats above the ground, or default into a nebulous inquiry into socio-ecological assemblages. So I want to ask some other questions here about, you know, what happens when we foreground that labour of education and the property relations surrounding it? Can we arrive at a more politically engaged and usefully engaged reading of that conservation work? Um, and can we, you know, as critical scholars, answer some questions like, what do the employment conditions and education missions of these workers tell us about the prospects for transformative change where property relations in the settler colonies start to look um, different, start to, to change along the lines that Christine is talking about? As Gramsci is often probably too quoted as saying, every relationship of hegemony is an education relationship. And the task, to my mind, that follows for social science is to bring that property question to the fore and figure out what we can contribute to the collective labour of creating political agreement with um, allies that are not unlike us. So I have some tentative views along those lines. Um, but I'll move on just to give you some examples. So this is where I work. Um, I work alongside the ANU Sustainable Farms program outside of the Fenner School. This is the map of the project area where conservation scientists and their extension team operate. It's an amalgam of ecological research and public education programs. There's a long list of threatened species in this part of New South Wales and the fragmented habitat um, across the agricultural landscapes is their concern. Over 80% of the grasslands and woodlands of the southwest slopes of New South Wales have been cleared since colonial occupation. The movement of Australia's settler colonial property regime westwards brought sprawl, sprawling herds of hooved animals overproduced and pushed to their limits by their extractive white masters. Meanwhile, the dispossession of First Nations people um, is bound up with the, um, uh, with the backing up into corners of the Indigenous non-human life on farm properties in these areas. So who works on these, these patches of biodiverse property um, to negotiate conservation um, outcomes? I did 20 interviews and the image of the rural conservation workforce I got was very similar to the profiles of urban um, environmental science and NGO workers um, and the left more broadly. Um, mostly white Anglo suburban born people who've moved to rural towns after high school or university education if they're over, um, if they're under 40. Many have an agricultural connection in some sense, some work their own small farms. Um, the employment conditions of these people is contingent to say the least. Most of the land care staff were part-time and fixed term on short contracts and nearly all women with young kids. The LLS staff 
which is state government, were more likely to have better contracts. They all had stories of turbulent restructuring in the state's environment and agricultural agencies that shaped their careers. And those who manage budgets and staff talked about structural decline in the funding base um, of their organisations and headaches in managing the fickle flow of grant-based funding. Sounds very much like the experience of the 40 to 60% of us in universities that work on a contract basis. Uh, these rural conservation educators sit in small offices in big regional centres as well as small, smaller towns. They are, if you like, organic intellectuals, and certainly they bring organic intellectuals into conversation with agricultural producers. Their day-to-day -day work is a mix of procedural stuff, meetings, grants, applications, reporting, communications and field work, visiting farms, bits of monitoring for compliance, a project here and there, public events, running stalls, field days. This is my annual colleagues. They sit at the applied end um, uh, of, and the ecology end of things. For years, they've known that the flora and fauna they want to study and conserve sits on private agricultural product, uh, property. So the science they're doing, which is mostly long-term ecological monitoring led by Professor David Lindemeyer, has to be done on farms. It means they've got to develop relationships with the people who control the agricultural landscape. One ecologist explained that process of setting up their field work. It's mainly talking to land care and the catchment management authorities and asking who owns that farm? Does anyone know who's got a heap of tree plantings? Things like that. Um, this picture is at a field day. They're standing on a patch of remnant woodland on private property. In general, the education mission is good as protection, restoration, enhancement of habitat on farms or in the plain language of, of the educator pictured here. What you've got, keep it. If you can enhance it, if you want to augment it. Um, in this space, there's lots of volunteerism. There's a tension over the relationship between conservation and production goals. In the last year, 10 years, we've seen a wave of advice and subsidies thrown at enhancing farm dams, for instance, which is about improving water quality and increasing the prevalence of native species. The value proposition here is really contested. I've heard everything from, you know, this is the right thing to do from the white collar, non-producing landholder um, to, you know, dismissing it as not genuine production advice from agricultural focused extension workers. Um, to the idea that um, farm dams could be carbon sinks for the next wave of carbon market um, uh, boom. This came from an entrepreneurial water scientist in this space. The kind of education situation that surrounds farm dams on properties like this reveals the tension for, for those engaged in this rural extension work. They're trying to put economic and ecological goals together. In one sense, the initiatives like farm dam enhancement press against or at least edit capitalist property relations with the use of subsidies, we could talk about that. They're asking landholders to produce diverse non-human life as if it was an asset. Um, at the risk of over-interpretation, we might see that these ideas from education workers in this space are trying to broker an alternative mode of production. But of course, there's another sense in which um, we're looking at very incoherent um, knowledge politics. And the big part of the story here is the, um, the contingency and incoherence of the state regime for regulating and finance conservation on farms. The labour of rural education is pushed and pulled by the vicissitudes of, of, of these 
of public finance decisions and the design of these spots of grants. They throw at riparian projects and other terrestrial projects. Um, I can go on more about the way they negotiate contracts, um, if you like, later. Basically, the willingness for farmers to engage in these um, uh, programs and contracts for conservation and, and suspended grazing depends on the farmer's level of debt and what they're producing. The graziers are easier to engage than the large cropping farmers. Um, and the research evidence tells me a lot of who's in this space in terms of who's listening are the non-production farmers, university educated and so on. So, so the, I, I, I'll go on, I can go on more in discussion about who's here, um, but I want to raise a couple of comments about the role of the state in this space. The structural decline of this kind of grant-based funding is massively um, undermining this workforce who are quite embedded and committed to the, some of the goals that we've been talking about here today. Um, it's, it's dovetailing with the rise of carbon and biodiversity offsetting, um, which is addressing some of the worries about whether any of this money does any good for habitat restoration and reconstruction, um, but it's creating basically a kind of wave of privatisation for this workforce, among other things. In terms of some very brief conclusions, I've, now, I've just gone a little bit over time. Um, I think this education workforce, um, working for conservation on farms is a window into our structural problems, particularly the political power of property in maintaining the violent ecological order of settler capitalism. Um, in this space, you can see that large-scale destocking of agricultural landscapes is unthinkable, so is the repossession of lands for First Nations people. But it's also uh, an important window into the ambivalence of the settler colonial state when it comes to working the boundaries of property and finance for the production of diverse life. Um, I think it's worth engaging politically for us urban people who want to see multi-species flourishing. Um, uh, there's obviously no emancipatory horizon when it comes to the politics of rural conservation education, no reckoning with property in the state. But I do think there's work for people like us to do here with these potential allies. The abolition argument um, could be built with practical political conversation with people who are used to practical political conversation. There's union work to do in joining property questions behind the extinction crisis to their labor questions. This is a really structurally underfunded workforce. Um, and of course, there's political work to do to get a grip on the class dynamics and knowledge work to do to get beyond the liberal green um, property common sense that's mixing currently with the ecological science. So I think, you know, where I'm up to with this project is certainly that there's lots of scope um, and these people are very like us in their socioeconomic profile and I'm interested um, in any thoughts on, you know, where you think the work should be going in this area. Thank you. Thanks so much, Beck. And some, again, the, the state has entered the conversation again, but also some important tactical considerations as well for how would we move forward, who, what alliances do we build, the Gramscian question of who the organic intellectual is in all of this. So hopefully these are questions we might return to. Okay, I'm going to close with my paper. And so my paper is called Re Revisiting the Problem of Animals and Property. And I, I have to say that my paper is a bit nerdier and exploring a conceptual point about what is property, what are we dealing with today? 
Most animals in direct relation with human economies today, whether within agricultural systems or as research subjects or companions, are owned as property. Indeed, just thinking about animal agriculture, the global standing stock of animals owned at any one time is likely to be in the order of 40 billion land animals, and probably, I don't know the exact number, probably about 200 billion fish. This represents a substantial proportion of the capital value of global animal agriculture, and the interests of property owners in these assets will continue to influence the debate over the future of animal source foods and the future of animal agriculture. It's perhaps not surprising in this context that the, the property status of animals has been one of the focus of animal rights debates over the last 30 years. The most well-known interlocutor in this discussion has been the US legal theorist, Gary Francione. In his book, Animals, Property and the Law, Francione intervened into the debates occurring within animal ethics to point out that most contemporary conflicts over the treatment of animals were shaped not by the interests of animals themselves or abstract considerations of ethics of wel or welfare, but by the interests of those who owned animals as property. Here Francione argued that legal protections, such as animal welfare laws or anti-cruelty statute statutes, typically prioritise the property interests of owners and these were property interests in the unfettered enjoyment and use of their property. In this context, through reg though regulation may provide limited protection to animals, Francione argues that recognition of animal rights are inconsistent with ownership of animals as property. Francione says, and I quote, to say that an animal or human is property is to say that as a matter of law, the animal or human has no value or holds no interests apart from the value accorded or the interests recognised by the individual property owner. In other words, to classify something as property is to, to defend its treatment solely as a means to the ends chosen by the property owner. Notice in this quote, Francione has highlighted the capacity for a human to be owned as property. Human forced labour is an important part of the analysis in the book, Animals, Property and the Law, which draws lines of comparison between racialized slavery and animals as property. This in turn has informed the language of the abolitionist approach advocated by Francione in his later work. Francione's comparisons of animals as property, uh, of property, animals as property to chattel slavery has been subject to lots of critique, notably by Claire Jean Kim, because of the assumption implicit within this framing that slavery was indeed abolished and that now we must follow suit by abolishing the property status of animals as the next liberation project. As Claire Jean Kim argues, this analysis misses the opportunity to understand abolition as an ongoing project in the afterlife of slavery and an opportunity for coalition between liberation movements and black liberation movements. However, rather than dwell on this critique, I would like to take the discussion of Francione's intervention in a different direction. What interests me in Francione's book is the way that property is understood. Francione states, and I quote, the common law has long treated animals as property based in part on the close connection between certain interpretations of genesis and philosophical doctrines that attempt to provide justifications of property status for animals based on the supposed defects or inherent inferiority of animals. However, I think Francione's rendition here somewhat flattens the history of animals as property. The property status of animals today differs from their existence as property in different economic systems. For example, in many economic systems, past and present, Animals were treated or are treated as stores of wealth, that is, as a financial repository. This use of animals as a bank by subsistence farmers, for example, 
differs dramatically from the contemporary uses of animal life within capitalist agriculture as a means for the production of surplus. In this context, I want to briefly consider the discussion of property contained within Orlando Patterson's landmark 1982 book, Slavery and Social Death. Today, this text has gained a new appreciation for its importance in influencing contemporary debates on racial slavery and anti-Black violence. However, in my view, Patterson's observations on property, which are interconnected with his analysis, are also worth highlighting. In this text, Patterson devotes time to exploring the history of property and its relationship to slavery. Perhaps controversially, Patterson rejects the idea that at the heart of slavery is the capacity to own a being as property. Instead, Patterson argues that property status is only one factor in regimes of slavery, but is not definitive. What defines slavery instead is a relationship of domination. Allow me to unpack Patterson's, Patterson's argument. In order to schematize different slavery regimes and drawing upon Marx, Patterson delineates between societies with a personalistic idiom of power, that is societies where individuals are given the power to have capacity to, to hold or hold over other people, versus societies with a materialistic idiom of power, such as capitalism, where power over others is possible through power over things, like commodities, land and money. In this context, Patterson is at pains to point out that what that we cannot use contemporary legal paradigms to understand the meaning of property in the ancient world. Since being owned in Greece or Rome, i.e. being a slave in Greece or Rome, implied something different from its meaning under modern conditions of slavery, racial, racial slavery. In particular, Patterson notes that categories of freedom which shape today's thinking do not translate to these other worlds, particularly as European Enlightenment notions of freedom circulate around, around the idea of not being owned, of owning oneself, and being unfettered by social obligation. Patterson says, and I quote, people did not seek to be free in the modern Western bourgeois sense of isolation from the influence of others in such systems, i.e. in ancient systems, because ironically, this was the surest path to slavery. Rather, they sought to be embedded in a network of protective power. The most unslave-like person was the one in whom a small number of claims, powers and privileges were spread over a large number of persons. The slave, on the other hand, was someone in whom a large number of claims, privileges and power were concentrated in a single person. By the way, note the resonances with Christine's talk or Christine's understanding of power that um, was advanced, um, property. So what is the genealogy of the modern conception of property? Here, Patterson argues that one strand of this history was the concept of dominus, developed in Roman property law through a legal fiction created to ensure, to, to describe the idea of an absolute ownership of things. This legal fiction established an absolute and unfettered right of the owner to their property. This right was marked by exclusivity, effectively immunizing the property owner from claims made by others to that property. It is this notion of property that arguably continues today in how we see property, private property. Patterson argues that the development of this conception of property in Roman law was a response to a crisis within the empire. A growing population of slaves without a strong line of delineation in social status between those who are free and those who are not. The conception of dominus thus answered this crisis by making clear the social status of the slave. Patterson also notes that later under 18th century capitalism, a different crisis emerged between the categories of individual freedom demanded by the European Enlightenment and the reality of an economic system structured on slave, slave ownership 
in the, particularly in the antebellum South. The reconciliation of this crisis, of this contradiction, according to Patterson, was the development of a racialized category of people who could not be incorporated into the American, American body politics, i.e. the creation of the social category of blackness as, as a solution to divide between those who had freedom and those who had the absolute opposite of freedom. In this whole story, Patterson says very little about animals. However, uh, it is clear that animal life today sits precisely at the intersection of a conception of property that entails absolute ownership, that is un ultimate unfettered dominion, and the capitalist economic system, which proliferates animals as property as a means to generate surplus. It is this historic intersection that helps to make sense of what animals as property means today, but also highlights the inter interconnection between our prevailing notions of property and their relations to capitalism and animals. In an odd, and I would say unspoken about section of animals, property and the law, Francione makes a somewhat remarkable gesture towards socialism. Francione says, and I quote, many people argue correctly in my view that overall social welfare would be dramatically improved, drastically improved if the institution of private property were abolished or modified to significantly provide for the redistribution of wealth. Nevertheless, there is no movement in the direction of abolishing or altering private property rights because there is general consensus that respect of private property rights is essential to respect for the individual and the ability of the individual to keep and use the fruits of her labour, end quote. Here, Francione puts forward, I would argue, a somewhat fatalistic argument. He states in essence that we would be better off, it would be preferable if we abandoned our attachment to property. However, general consensus and ideological consensus prevents us from opening this important discussion. It is, it is this fatalism that leads Francione to the apparently more modest proposal that we should abolish the property status of animals instead. However, I'm curious to what extent it is possible to flip the argument given, argument given uh, by Francione, given the very important reasons why we should be reinvigorating the question on private property and its relationship to colonialism global inequality and the climate disaster. Rather than settle fatalistically for animal personhood, what would it mean for animal advocates to take seriously the prospect of eliminating the institution of private property itself? Or more particularly, re-centering economies away from a conception of property that's located around, as Patterson described, the idea of dominus, that is the idea of an absolute unfettered domination of life. Thank you. So I'd like to say thanks to our speakers for joining this fantastic discussion. I'd also like to thank SEI, particularly Genevieve Wright and Kirsten Jackson for their assistance in setting up this event. Um, to stay in touch with SEI's events, please subscribe to the monthly newsletter or follow us on the socials. Thanks once again for joining us today. <laughs>